The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. And our guest today is Dr. Kathy Hull. We first heard about her when we watched her TED Talk, Stories from a Home for Terminally Ill Children. She is the founder of the George Mark Children's House, the first freestanding children's palliative care facility in San Leandro, California. It's the first of its kind to ever open in the United States. The subject of death is taboo, especially with children. But as Dr. Hull says, children don't stop dying just because we, the adults, can't comprehend the injustice of losing them. Dr. Hull, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what made you start the George Mark Children's House? Well, as you mentioned, I'm a clinical psychologist with a specialization in health-related issues. So for many years, I was actively on staff at Oakland Children's Hospital, working on the oncology unit. And it it became so clear working with children who were critically ill that the hospital wasn't necessarily the best place for them. For many children, it is. They're in with an acute bout of something, and the goal is to get them well and get them home, of yeah, course. Yeah, something short-term. For children with chronic illnesses who may or may not be able to survive that illness, getting them out of the hospital is often the best thing that can happen. So that really was the motivation. Let's see if we can't get kids out of the hospital and into a setting that feels so much more like home, user-friendly, pets, um, you know, family-style meals, lots of things that are um, possible in a small environment like ours that aren't in a hospital. So how did you actually then go about the moving from the idea to the actual reality of the George Mark House? That's a great question. Um, it really was a vision. It, it felt doable to me. And I often say that the reason it felt doable was because I had a lot of naivete <laughs> about the business world and what what it might really entail to get all the permits and become a nonprofit organization and develop a board and all of the multitude of details. But because the big picture was so compelling and the thought that we really could do this, it took probably eight years from the time that we first talked about it as a group of people and a board um, to being able to open our doors. So it was a long slog, but well worth it. Well, what is it that makes it so special to you? Oh, my gosh. Um, many different things, not the least of which is it really is the work that I do. And I'm able to um, use all of my training as a psychologist in so many different ways at George Mark working with the families, working with the children, working with 
our staff. Um, it's also a very personal endeavor for me. It is named for my two brothers who died when they were young. So it's been a lovely family thing to do. To um, They didn't live long enough to do the things they might have in the world. So this was a real opportunity to say, guess what, Georgia Mark, we're going to do this for you. Wow. How, how did, did that really plant the seed um, in terms of your life's work? Well, surely, as Freud would say, there are no accidents. You know, somewhere in my head, um, the notion of helping people through a critical illness was formed, you know, certainly while George was as ill as he was. Um, But it wasn't until after three children that I went back to grad school and got a master's in counseling and established myself in that field. And then 10 years after that, I went back to get a doctorate to specialize in health-related issues. So it was a long, winding road. And what is the George Mark House like? Tell us, tell us what the, the, the place is like. Well, as you walk in the front door, um, you might be greeted by any one of our kids and a volunteer um, at the front door or out on the grounds for a walk. There are often therapy animals there. Um, I saw you talked about a therapy camel that even comes there. We do have a therapy camel. Um, Now we have a baby camel. This is actually our second therapy camel. Um, This young camel named Freddie is adorable and has been to the house and has been out representing us actually at various events. So that's a gift. I... I grew up with a friend who raises camels, and he's our connect to having a therapy camel. Um, But we also have the Oakland Zoo comes twice a month and brings all kinds of things. Some of our staff say, let me know when the snakes are coming and I won't be there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's, I think the piece that is most surprising when people come to visit is how full of life the house is. I think people are very intimidated, as you mentioned, by the thought that children are dying. And that's always a tug at the heartstrings to think Mm -hmm. that children won't get a long life as you wish they would. But because some of them don't, the need for what we're doing is all the more imperative. Well, how is it that sick children can live longer lives in a facility like George Mark than in a hospital? Because you talk about in your TED Talk the George Mark bump where kids live longer than they would have otherwise than their life expectancy. You know, that's an observation that we've made. Um, This is our 14th year of being open. And what we found, and at some point we'll do a longitudinal study on this and come up with some meaningful statistics. At At the moment, I'm telling you what, we have observed in the years that we've been taking care of children, getting them out of the hospital is a very calming experience, both for the parents and the child. I mean, they really are in an environment that is so much less fraught with bells and whistles and noises and disruptions. And they can, they can be in a place that supports their family being there with them. We have two apartments for families so they can move in. Um, and each 
Each of the eight rooms that we have for children has a full-size twin bed in it, so a sibling or a parent can always spend the night with the child. But just the sense of getting the kids outside again. So many of these children have spent huge chunks of their lives inside a hospital room. And it's really difficult for a hospital to get kids outside. And for us, it isn't. Um, We can put them in wheelchairs or wagons um, on nice days if, you know, it's feasible and we have rolled those beds outside. Mm -hmm. It's amazing what fresh air can do for one's both outlook and ability to thrive for a little bit longer. And we're not suggesting that we change the outcome of the illness although wouldn't it be nice if we could? But what we are saying is that it really gives families an opportunity to decompress, take advantage of the time that they do have with their child, and everybody gets a quality of life that's really hard for a hospital to do. And I would think also for families, um, having a child with a life-limiting illness must be so... um, difficult to come to terms with in the sense that I think when you have a child, you're looking forward to a long life. You're thinking that's going to be a, a a healthy child. And then all of a sudden, boom, you may be just becoming a parent or having a child a few years old. And suddenly you're just hit with, with a, a very different scenario than you thought you were going to encounter. So what are some of the things that you provide for the families? How do you help them deal with this time in life? We offer um, really the best way to describe it, I think, is is just wrapping our arms around that family and saying you don't have to do this by yourselves. And we have an extraordinarily well-trained staff of um, support people from a child life specialist. We have, as has been mentioned, a cadre of volunteers who come in and can interact with healthy siblings, giving the family a chance to um, pay more attention to the sick child if that's what they need to do. Our kitchen provides three hot meals a day so they don't have to worry about, you know, what are we doing for dinner? Um, It really does function like a home away from home for families. Mm -hmm. And how long are are families and, and children typically there for? There really isn't a good answer to that. Some families come over a period of years for what we call respite care. So their children, we call those frequent flyers. Their children come and stay with us for a week or two, up to 21 days a year. Um, while the family, you know, the parents can go home and crawl back into bed, get some much needed sleep. They can take a healthy child to Disneyland. Sometimes they're headed to a wedding across the country and can't take their child. So that's a really important piece of what we're able to do. And then we um, offer transitional care with the focus being on getting a child out of the hospital and really training the parents to be able to manage whatever protocol of medications or treatments that child needs to go home and be safe. So that's a piece of what we do as well. And then, of course, end-of-life care. And that's an unlimited stay. I mean, families come and stay as long as they need to. How can you possibly prepare the children for the idea of death? The siblings or the the actual patient? You know, kids are really perceptive, and it's often it's not so much preparing the sick child as it is really preparing the family to be supportive to that child. And 
as a parent, and um, Bill and I are blessed with a big blended family of eight kids, so I'm I'm really aware of the angst that it would be to know that your child is not going to have the luxury of a long life. So um, lots of times it's really just helping the parents to be as supportive as they can to that child. And, and you guys help out the parents after a child passes, correct? We do. We have unlimited bereavement support, and we also have lots of um, activities during the year that are designed to bring our families back together so that they can develop a support network with each other. We do a family picnic every year. We um, have pumpkin painting day. We have um, cooking events. Pizza people come in and help. And um, and one of our most significant events every year is the annual um, Remembrance Day. So any family who's had a child um, come to George Mark and die there is invited back. In December, and it's a worldwide day of remembrance. So it's a very—we're just one venue for an event that's going on around the world, and it's very lovely. And candles are lit, and meaningful both to the staff and the families. Our nobody told me conversation continues as we help spread the word about our sponsor, Blissy. Blissy, spelled B-L-I-S-S-Y, makes all kinds of products to help you get a great night's sleep. I've been sleeping on a Blissy Mulberry Silk pillowcase this past week, and it's made a wonderful difference in the quality of my sleep. Me too. Seriously, because silk is what's best for your hair and your skin. It reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents breakage. That's because it keeps the moisture in your hair and keeps your skincare products and natural moisture on your skin, unlike cotton does. With the Blissy pillowcase, you can say goodbye to wrinkly skin in the morning and wake up with healthier and shinier hair you can be proud of. I love I love the way my skin looks and the way my hair feels after sleeping on a Blissey pillowcase. And I love the fact that Blissey's pillowcases regulate temperature, keeping you cool at night. The entire pillow is cool to the touch. No more sweaty nights spent tossing and turning as you search for the cool side of your pillow. Blissey pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is naturally hypoallergenic, so you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. And unlike other silk pillowcases, Blissey's are machine washable and durable. With the holidays just around the corner, why not give the gift of better sleep? And what better gift could you give? And Blissey products come in gift-ready packaging. Blissey is the 2021 Good Housekeeping winner for Best Bedding, so you can rest assured that you're giving a great gift. Everybody loves them. They have a ton of different prints and colors, and they make great gifts because there's an option for literally anyone, even kids. They have over 1 million raving fans, and you could be Next. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissy.com slash nobody and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash nobody and use code nobody to get an additional 30% off. Your skin and hair will thank you. Sleep better with Blissy and use code nobody to get an additional 30% off at blissy.com slash nobody. And Blissy has set up a great web page for our listeners. So if you're looking for a better night's sleep for yourself or someone on your gift list, check out the wonderful products and fantastic deals at blissy.com slash nobody. What about the siblings that that are 
living in a situation where they have another sibling who is is seriously ill. Um, how do you help them? What do you say to them? And how, how what can any family do to help support a sibling in that situation? Really, um, there are lots of different ways to be supportive to that sibling. A lot of what happens at George Mark, I mentioned our child life specialist, who is terrific at doing art therapy, um, which is a wonderful way for siblings to be able to express some of the emotions that they might not be articulating, particularly if they're small children, you know, and are confused about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why are we spending so much time in a hospital and why aren't we home? And um, we have a music therapist who comes. Music is a wonderful gift to both the sick children and their siblings. And it's a way that they can be together and do some activities as well. And if they're old enough to engage in um, supportive therapy, you know, I can work with siblings and we have a social worker who's very skilled at that as well. You have this fabulous TED talk that's available for people to check out um, on the TED website. And what immediately caught my ear was how you talked about the unparalleled wisdom of sick children. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why are these kids so much wiser than the adults that surround them? I think the expression old soul really describes a lot of the children that we see. They have um, experienced a lot in a short life. You know, the highs and lows for them are very different than somebody who's high as a trip to Disneyland and whose right. low is, you know, missing a birthday party. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really have mm-hmm. experienced a gamut mm-hmm. of life in a short period of time. And they are, they're wise. They, um, as I said, kids are very perceptive. I mean, they, they are hopeful, of course, for a positive outcome for their illness. But I think intrinsically they may know that that isn't the outcome they're going to get. So then they shift gears and, you know, make other plans and do other things. It's, it's pretty amazing. What are some of the more uh, memorable, I'm sure every family and every child that you've come in, in contact with over the years is memorable, but what are some of the ones that maybe stick out? Gosh, we have a young man who's been coming to us. Um, his name is Charlie, and he's now 18, and he's been coming for respite care since he was five. And he has a life-limiting diagnosis, and he was um, taken in by his adoptive parents as a medically fragile foster child and not expected to live to be one. And honestly, he lives on love and fumes. And he is so much a part of the George Mark family. He just spent 10 days with us. Um, that we look at him really, and it's just a reflection of what both the incredible care that he gets at home and the support that he gets to do things that one would not imagine. I mean, he's very challenged physically, does not have the use of his arms, incredibly adept with his feet, was the highlight last year at our our big annual fundraising event because he had just graduated from high school and had his first ever job, and he brought his paycheck for 300 and some odd dollars and presented it to us. 
Oh, wow. Oh, my God. And now he gives, now he is donating $15 every month from his relatively modest paycheck to us. Wow. And he really thinks that we're his family. I mean, he has articulated that. And his parents have been so open and honest with him about the limitations of his lifespan. And he said, I I know that. And he said, I just want to be at George Mark. Mm-hmm. Why is it that there aren't many, very many facilities like George Mark in the United States? I think I saw that there are only two in the United States while there's 54 in Great Britain. Um, I'm happy to say that we're now up to four operating um, pediatric facilities similar to ours in the United States. I think part of it is um, circles back to what you mentioned when we first started this conversation that People don't do well with the idea of children dying. Um, children don't have a vote. So often their voices aren't um, getting heard in the same way that adults do. So I think that we, and when I say we, I mean George Mark and any pediatric palliative care facility, are really modeling what it means to have this kind of care on our continuum of care. Fifty years ago, um, actually 1969 was the first year that there was an adult hospice in the United States, and now it's absolutely part of the landscape. Mm -hmm. Nobody would even question that there would be hospice care for an adult. Mm -hmm. I may not live long enough to know that there are these kinds of facilities everywhere, but I think it will happen. What about the improvements you've seen uh, as far as the outlook is concerned for children with life-limiting diseases. With all of the technological advancements we've seen in, in the world of medicine, are you seeing encouraging signs that, that maybe kids who, who, for whom the prognosis would have been much more negative 50 years ago, that there, there is a oh, longer lifespan? Yes. yes, yes, yes. And it's lovely to be able to say that. Um, leukemia is a great example. 50 years ago, 50% of kids diagnosed with leukemia did not survive that diagnosis. Now, um, upwards of 80% of them do. So it's a very scary diagnosis, obviously, for parents. But there are so many more treatments and protocols available than there were. Another wonderful example of that is um, kids living with HIV and AIDS. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was an epidemic 30 years ago. And now, you know, the care for that, it's become a chronic illness with which people live and very few children um, are born with it in the way that they were because their the care of their parents is managed so differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's the picture's the a little bit. The that we get that um, are the real challenges and for which there haven't, you know, wonderful cures haven't yet been found often include Genetic anomalies, you know, chromosomal things that happen um, at birth, and they're often rare, Mm. and there just isn't something that's going to be very effective in treating them. And maybe not a lot of research done on that particular thing because it's so rare. And then you see that their parents become really engaged in trying to raise money and awareness and research. Mm -hmm. And we get to be a a little part of that in supporting them and and try to be proactive for their children. How do families find out about you, and how can they become part of 
of the George Mark mm-hmm. program if if they are in need of it? Well, we're certainly available to any family whose child has a life-limiting diagnosis. Um, that decision is made by our medical staff about whether or not, in fact, we can provide all the appropriate services that a child may need. But the referrals come to us um, often from a primary care physician, um, discharged nurses in a hospital setting, social workers. Um, a lot of our respite care kids, the initial referral comes from the regional centers where they're being provided services. We describe ourselves as a best-kept secret, but we don't <laughs> want to be a secret. Yeah. Right. Because we're small, right. you know, it, we're not on everybody's radar screens, but we would like to be. But in order to get more of these facilities, people need to be more comfortable with the idea of talking about children who are facing the reality of death. And I know that when I was telling my friends that my mom and I were going to interview you, people seem really uncomfortable and were saying like, oh, it's such a sad topic. They just want to avoid it. So what would you say to those people? I would agree that, as I mentioned, the the fact that children may not survive is sad, but it's also real. I mean, automobile accidents are sad and probably not anybody's favorite topic of conversation, but we do have ways to deal with them and we address the safety of automobiles. I think in much the same way, we just need to accept the fact that for that small minority of children who are not going to have a wonderful long lifespan, we need to step up to the plate and really provide excellent services. They need them the most. How does what you do differ from the Ronald McDonald House? Because I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the Ronald McDonald House. How, what are the differences? That's a great question and, and one that um, we get asked frequently. Ronald McDonald House um, provides a wonderful service for families whose children are hospitalized. And it is the housing piece of a hospitalization for a family who lives outside of the area. Um, And often kids come to big teaching hospitals for the best expertise for somebody with brain, you know, a brain tumor, for instance. A hospital out in, you know, a small regional area may not have the care. So a family suddenly finds itself not only upside down with this diagnosis, but needing care in a city that's 100 miles from where they live. Ronald McDonald House is set up particularly for that. Um, The difference is that we provide the medical care on site for our families so that when the children actually leave the hospital, our medical staff could continue the care that they were receiving in the hospital. Okay, okay. What message would you have for a family that may have just learned that they have a child who has a life-limiting illness and just don't know what to do? I would acknowledge, first of all, how absolutely overwhelming it is to a family. And certainly my message would be one that says, take advantage of the support when people offer it. Uh, Say yes to those kinds of things. Um, We're there. I mean, if we're the appropriate place for that family to be, hopefully their physician or, you know, 
medical social worker would let them know that we're an alternative. But having a really sick child is a very isolating experience for families um, for much the reason that you suggested. People act as if a dying child might be contagious, and they're really reluctant to intrude, for one thing. They feel like they might be um, interrupting something significant for that family. But I would say to the people who are friends of families with critically ill children, keep them on your radar screens. They need you. Our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we like to ask our guests, what is your nobody told me moment? What do you wish that somebody had told you before you started George Mark? Well, I think that if somebody had told me how challenging it would be, I might have entered that project with more trepidation. I'm not sure that it would have deterred me because I really um, had been to England enough times to see what this kind of care looked like and what a difference it made to the families. And I really thought, wow, why aren't we doing this in the United States? So I think the nobody told me piece was that there weren't any in the United States. We just thought we needed one in the Bay Area. Right. And I mean, seeing the impact you've had on all of these families and children must make it so worth it now. It's very heartwarming work. It really is. It's very poignant, as one can imagine. But it's also so lovely to be in the right place at the right time and just say, we're here. We can help you. You know, we're here for the long haul. And that must give you such a different outlook on gratitude and appreciation for life than the average person because you're with these children who have all of this wisdom and who are facing such difficult things every single day. I would say that's really true for all of our staff that, you know, to go home at the end of a long day and be healthy ourselves and have healthy children, there's an enormous amount of gratitude for that. And a real willingness to say, how do we give back? How can we play this forward in a way that's going to be meaningful? You have about 100 volunteers, I understand. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the gamut that they run uh, and what brings them to, to your facility. Our volunteers are remarkable for their ability um, and willingness, I would say, to do whatever needs to be done. We have volunteers who help in the kitchen. We have volunteers who help with the front office work, mailings, um, projects, filing. We have volunteers who are very hands-on with our sick kids and their siblings and families. So, as I mentioned, if you pulled up into our um, front entrance, you might see a volunteer walking a child around the grounds just to be outside with a child. Um, We have a volunteer who comes in and plays the piano. I mean, whatever somebody feels that they could bring to the table is usually happily received. And why do they do it? What typically brings them to you? Gosh, a lot of the people that we have have been involved in some other way with children. They're former teachers. Um, We have former medical people who just, you know, nurses who no longer want to actively practice but are happy to come be part of a medical setting. Our kitchen volunteers just like to cook, and, you know, it's fun. 
They come and they get to help prepare really nice meals and they're appreciated for that. I think in any um, sense, when somebody has chosen to be a volunteer somewhere, something has attracted them to that. And certainly a big piece of it is that heartwarming sense of I get to make a difference. How can people learn more about George Mark if they're not familiar with you guys? Well, we have a website. In and what is the website? www.georgemark.org. We have a Facebook page, um, a Twitter account. My TED Talk, I think, does a nice job of giving people a big picture right, of right. what we're doing. And you can also figure out how you can volunteer there as well if you're local to the area, correct, on the website? Absolutely. The website has that. And um, our volunteer coordinator does three volunteer intensive volunteer trainings three, three or four times a year. We just had one last weekend. We'll have another one in March probably if people are interested. You know, another question that comes to my mind, what message would you have for parents of healthy kids who have a friend who has a life-limiting illness. You know, what do you tell the parents of the healthy kids to to say to these kids, or how do they react to the kids? How should they react to the kids who are not as fortunate? I really think one of the things that people can do is be present. As I was saying, families with a sick child often find themselves isolated because of that illness. So... Um, friends, if ever there were a time to step up to the plate, to be a good friend, it would be that. And I think rather than calling to say, is there something I can do to help to actually say, I'm going to the grocery store and I'll be by with, you know, food for dinner, or I'm coming by tomorrow with dinner for your family. I'm running errands. Let me take some things to the cleaners for you. Families are overwhelmed. Just managing the day-to-day activities become, you know, really a challenge. And often, a home that has had two working parents suddenly finds itself with considerably less income as well because one parent is home with a really sick child. So to keep that in mind and think of what, you know, what might be supportive to that family, like taking a healthy sibling on an outing that the parents might not be able to do themselves. There are really so many ways to be supportive, and it it doesn't involve a lot of creativity. It just involves thinking, what would I like to have happen if I had a really sick child? Right. But but I I'm, guess what I'm getting at is if you have a healthy child and the healthy child is friends with the kid who is sick, how do you how do you tell the healthy child to help this the, the sick child? Um, and I would take say that taking the lead from the parents of the sick child. Mm-hmm. I mean, often they're delighted to have. Kids come over to play, or they're delighted to have their child. You know, these kids are sick. They're not actively dying. Uh Mm -hmm. So invite that child out. And the parent will say yes or no, depending on whether that fits in their schedule. But to not forget that these kids, uh, you know, have a lot of life still to live. And need a friend. And need a friend. Well, Dr. Kathy Hall, it has been such an honor to talk to you. I think your TED Talk is up to almost a million views now um, if people want to look at it online. If more people listen, I'm trying to catch up to the Pope, and he has six million. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> we'll try to get the word out yeah. for you. <laughs> we'll try and get you to that six million. Thank you. Um, you're the founder of the George Mark Children's House, which is the first freestanding children's palliative care facility in the United States. And it's been so interesting to talk to you about such a taboo subject. And what you do is just so remarkable. I know we just are in awe of what you do for these children and their families. Thank you for inviting me to come be part of this and tell people what we're doing. Thank you so very much. You've been listening to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. Thank you for joining us. 